Drawing room over here. You made it. Oh, come on through. Do you fancy drink? What's your tipple? What do the Plumbers and Fitters Union, the High Court of Australia, the Geelong Arts Centre, the State Library of Queensland and the Warringah Civic Centre all have in common? Well, they're all housed in brutalist-style buildings, a style characterised by concrete, practicality, built for longevity. The architectural style has come in and out of fashion, you could say, over the years. Heidi Dockerlil was inspired to write about brutalist architecture when the battle for the Sirius building in the rocks began in 2016. Hello, Heidi. Hello. How are you? It feels like most Sydney siders have a connection with this Sirius building. It was impossible not to notice when you're driving over the Harbour Bridge. It's a square box style of apartments, neatly stacked, a bit like Lego even. And by a chance encounter, you got to have a look inside, didn't you? How did this come about? Yeah, it was back in 2016 and the fight to save Sirius was really heating up at that point. I think it was the moment when the State Heritage Minister of the time announced that he wouldn't list the building. So I felt very passionate about trying to do something. I went down and um, was taking some photos with a friend who's a photographer and Myra just happened to pull up in a taxi, Myra Demetrio. She was one of the last two people to leave and she was such a strong force. I mean, she was 90 at that time and um, she was very kind of famous for inviting journalists up to her apartment. So she welcomed us up and made us a cup of tea. She was so well known for baking cakes for every campaign launch and um, I remember her looking me in the eye and just saying very very strongly, I've been very nice and very obliging and very accommodating up until now, but they'll have a real fight on their heart, on their hands because I'm a hard taskmaster and I know my rights. And she really <laughs> did. She was pretty incredible. Let's go back to how brutalist architecture made its roots in Australia. It was sort of solidified as a movement in post-war England, somewhat uh, transported here. How did... When did we start to see this shift from sandstone to concrete in some of our architecture? Well, the government architects branch back in the 50s, 60s was really building all the civic structures across the city, um, across Australia and in Sydney particularly all the sands. They were kind of the new generation of sandstones that were starting to be built. Um, They were really looking at libraries and banks and schools and government buildings, universities, and it was a time of huge expansion. So I think brutalism really became that new generation of buildings. Um, They they really distinguished Sydney and they're really tough, like concrete is such a tough material, uh, lasts forever, and they were really looking for that perfect material that was strong and had that resilience. The, the branch was also really interesting because it was the place where all the young and very talented and gifted architects wanted to work. So there was a really long list of people who tried to get in as cadets every year from university. And within the, the department as well, they would give student, well, gr- recent graduates uh, the chance to go travelling overseas. So they could go and get scholarships and travel to America and Europe and meet all the legends of architecture 
and bring back all these ideas. I mean, the branch also had such a good library of um, architecture journals like Domus, which was, which was and still is really highly respected. So there was this kind of different approach to architecture that was nuanced and sophisticated that was sort of being developed within the, the government architects branch. Artistic movements are funny things. They either come with a bang and a manifesto, a, a, a sort of intent, if you like, or sometimes they're defined only in retrospect. I'm curious if these designers and architects of the 50s and 60s were conscious of the movement specifically, or were they just designing for practical purposes? <laughs> yeah, I think it was the latter, because it's very funny. Um when I interviewed, I interviewed lots and lots of architects, many of whom uh, built the buildings. So I was so lucky to get to meet them and to chat about the stories behind them. But they all, there was a unifying kind of force behind all of them. They all, they all said that they um, disagreed with that label and they believed they were all doing their own thing. And I think, you know, I think in many ways, architecture like art is always like that. No one wants to be sort of pulled into a, a sort of a, a descriptor, which which I guess as journalists and writers, we like to kind of create those because <laughs> yeah. it helps to sort of define and to sort of think about them and to see what they mean. I mean, like it or not, these many of these buildings did have one thing in common. They all seemed to uh, be designed for social purposes, you know, cultural institutions, public housing, such as the Sirius building. There's a, a connection here between the aesthetic and the purpose, this kind of idea of being utilitarian, uh, this kind of egalitarian uh, timelessness, if you like. Yeah, definitely a timelessness. Um, I mean, they were architects of the day who were curious. They were looking at material, but they were also exploring engineering. There was huge innovation that went into the buildings, Um and architects were were really engineers as well who who worked very closely on understanding the capabilities i mean they they're radical buildings i mean they still feel radical um 50 years later um at the time they were doing things that buildings hadn't done before um when you think about concrete it's a, li- a liquid material um you pour it into formwork that formwork takes its shape and then you have to wait to see what happens so you know there's that um, that's there's sort of a magic around it as well um and i do feel like your point about the buildings being here forever i mean i think there was certainly you know that level of understanding that they wanted to make buildings that would last that were designed for the people for the city and those buildings are when you when you kind of get up close and and you look at them they from a distance they're big and bold but they're closer up they're really soft and they're sculptural craft is central to what they're about and although bold is what people think about first when you get up close you know you really understand that level of finesse they're really beautifully made so if these buildings were built with such a civic purpose in mind and a function if you like why weren't buildings like the serious building protected by the heritage listing i mean a lot of them aren't a lot of these brutes mm. aren't so why why so uh, you know they, they are icons of cities certainly in sydney seemingly bureaucrats don't seem to hold them in that sort of regard 
I mean, I think around the world um, cities understand that they need to protect those buildings. I mean, the Barbican in London is such a great example of that. People just, like, want to live in there because it's just such a fantastic building. But in Australia, I think we're sort of behind in terms of understanding the value of buildings within that modernist period of architecture. It's almost too close for people for some reason. Um, I mean, Glenn Harper, who is really the expert on brutalism uh, in Sydney and has travelled and done lots of research around the world, he talks about that kind of political side to it where perhaps in politics governments want to forget that past because somehow or other it doesn't fit into the narrative of what they want to create now. So it's probably partly that, but also partly the fact that our, I guess our protections need to be re-looked at and we really do need to fast track a kind of way of protecting modernism because otherwise we're missing out on a whole story of our kind of architectural history. And architectural history is cities and the stories behind them. So if we're missing that period, we're missing that whole story in our history. If you just joined me on RN Drive, design writer Heidi Dockerlil is here. We're discussing uh, her love affair with brutalist architecture and the uh, certainly the love affair that a lot of Sydney siders have towards some of the brutes that stick out on the Sydney skyline and other skylines around Australia. So let's talk about not only the birth but also the death of these sorts of buildings. Uh, were they modular? I mean, were they made with concrete off-site to be stacked on top of each other and when it comes to their reimagining or even death what ha- what's it like to bring down one of these magnificent concrete beasts <laughs> well they're all made differently actually so as time went on um the early the early brutes were pretty much formed on site then there were sort of advances in technology where prefabrication could happen and elements were precast. So a lot of buildings are a mix of the two. Um, we were talking about Sirius and Sirius is those modules and they um, they are kind of elements that, that stack together. Um, and then other buildings um, like the Molecular Bioscience Building at Sydney Uni is a mix of the two. So yeah, they're quite, they're quite unique. Each building is unique. So they're not kind of like cookie cutter sort of produced in any way. Uh, when you talk about sort of the danger that buildings are in, there's so many that, you know, are kind of sitting empty. Um, one of my favourites actually is the Mines building out in Lidcombe, which is an extraordinary building. It's so interesting. It's got such a strong narrative. It's beautifully made. It's got big sort of sculptural staircases that are expressed and big circular cutouts so the sun kind of shoots through the building itself. I mean, in terms of uh, taking them down, I think um, it's interesting to think about that and the impact that that has because COP28 just announced last week that the building industry really needs to stop demolishing and start refurbishing uh, if we're going to curb the industry's huge CO2 output. So I think that's really, um, you know, so urgent that we need to be revisiting how we can repurpose buildings because they're so solid they're so well built. A lot of them look a bit dirty, but it's only because they haven't been cleaned. And the unique thing about concrete too, compared to say sandstone buildings, you can clean them and clean them and clean them without removing any of the surface, whereas sandstone, every time you clean it, you're losing a little bit of the surface of the sand. So I think we need to reframe how we look at 
brutalism in, in the way of thinking about how we can keep them. You've made me really think about these buildings, these buildings like the UTS building, which stick out. And, you know, I, I think for someone who grew up in Sydney, you kind of think about these buildings like uh, the family dog, you know, getting a bit, <laughs> uh, well, a bit unloved and perhaps ugly to some, but, you know, nevertheless, it's our dog and these buildings are our dogs. And I just wonder what you think the kind of prevailing appeal of brutalism is, given all the wonderful history and design pedigree that you've uh, put into this book? Well, I think um, I think for me it's the stories that they tell and also their uniqueness. I mean, we have a sea of buildings that go up in cities and so many of them are just blank cookie cutters. They're, they're not interesting. There's no love that's gone into them. I think these buildings had had actual kind of care. They, they express a material in such a unique way. They've got the craftsmanship. I mean, everyone I spoke to said, you know, the, the craftspeople who made these buildings, the form workers, predominantly from Italy, they were apparently the best. Um, they really kind of made them uh, to perfection. Um, the Reader's Digest building, for example, John James, who designed that building, he described the form work as carpentry. Um, it was so precise. And when they took the the form timber formwork off, uh, it, it kind of was like marble. And when you go there and touch that facade, it's so smooth and it actually looks like marble. So I do think, um, I think they've got unique personality. I think they stand out and that I think that's good. They, they all kind of respond to their site as well. If you get a chance to go inside, do it because the interiors are just luminous. Um, the Reader's Digest building, for example, the Masonic Centre in the city, they've got more than five metre high columns which just soar above you and the concrete is just so beautiful. So I think, yeah, I think they're, they're more than their heroic kind of presence. They've got a quietness and a softness as well and I think that's the thing. There's so much to experience in those buildings. They're not just a kind of a two-point perspective. They're sort of many, many layers and many, many um, kind of details that are so surprising and so interesting. Another building that is extraordinary and, and kind of goes along the lines of what we're talking about in terms of saving brutes is the UTS College in Linfield that has just been turned into a, a new school. That's one of the few heritage-listed um, brutes at a state level. Uh, it's an extraordinary building. It sort of emerges from the bush. It's like a fortress in the mountain. It's absolutely gorgeous and it connects to landscape. And I think that's the other thing about the brutes that it really is specific to Sydney. Um, they really connect to the landscape. So there's that beautiful kind of continuity between the gum trees and that raw concrete facade and the way that the light sort of forms through the buildings. I mean, they are extraordinary. You've really made me appreciate what we have <laughs> and the importance of trying to keep these brutes uh, loved and uh, as part of, of, of our city landscape. Design writer Heidi Dockerlil has been my guest. Her fantastic new book, Sydney Brutalism, is out now. Great to talk to you, Heidi. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast of The Drawing Room with me, Andy Park.